we have a lot of knowledge about wildfire and the ecology of it and how it functions in, in our ecosystems. Um, what we struggle enormously with and the reason that we see wildfire disasters is that human relationship with fire and our sort of evolving, um, our evolving view of fire over the history of not just the US, but human history from something that is an incredibly valuable tool for humans that has shaped our evolutionary path. I often argue um, to my students that, you know, when people ask if humans are different from other animals, um, and there's a lot of discussions about various, you know, opposable thumbs and brain size and all these other things. And the argument that I make over and over again is that we are the only species on Earth that can make and control fire. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Monti. And as always, I want to first off, thank you guys for being here, for listening to the podcast, subscribing to the podcast telling your friends about it, uh, reviewing it, and all the above. I really, really appreciate it. And if you guys are looking for some ways to uh, financially support the podcast, you can check out our Patreon. I have that linked in our Instagram pages, our social pages, as well as on the show notes for this episode. All Patreon donations go towards reporting costs, travel costs, and other costs associated with putting this thing out every other week roughly I've been kind of bad about actually putting it out every other week but I'm gonna try to do better in the future Um, moving forward I'm hoping to do quite a bit more traveling this summer I'm hoping to actually do some in-person interviews and go uh, to some various prescribed fire events Um, I'll be doing work as a public information officer hopefully going out on a few incidents this summer and I might be able to try to wrap that up into the podcast a little bit maybe talk to some incident commanders or other fire personnel. Um, just in general, I'll, I'll hopefully be traveling quite a bit this summer, and I hope to get you guys some more in-person, kind of more personal interviews. For today's episode, we are speaking with Crystal Colden. Crystal is an assistant professor at the University of California, Merced, and she adheres to the same philosophy that I do, kind of just this breadth over depth perception, um, this breadth over depth philosophy, I guess you could say. She has a huge range of, um, of expertise. She has a huge a variety of topics that she speaks on regularly that she writes about, that she publishes um, academic papers, academic articles about. And I actually ran across her work when I was working on a piece that I did last fall for The Atlantic about the shortcomings of our prescribed fire sort of structure as it is right now. The piece that I referenced from her was called We're Not Doing Enough Prescribed Fire in the Western United States to Mitigate Fire Risk. And that's how I kind of first got turned on to um, to Crystal's work. And since then, I've since followed her on Twitter and really enjoy her insights and figured I'd reach out for a conversation and to hear a bit more about her background and the work she's doing and her uh, kind of the work she's looking to do in the future, as well as a few of her perspectives on uh, the misconceptions of wildfire uh, and a couple other things. We talked about a, a variety of topics, as is common on this podcast. So I'll let her kind of take it from here on that. But Thanks again for listening. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, please share it with somebody that you think might also enjoy it. And uh, maybe subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you haven't already. 
Anyways, we'll get right to it. Thanks again, and hope you enjoy the episode. I have a very non-traditional and winding path uh, to where I am today, and it's um, it is always a, a great irony that somebody who grew up in one of the wettest places in the contiguous U.S. Um, in Western Washington ended up uh, working on fire in some of the driest and <laughs> hottest places uh, in in the country, but. Um, yeah, um, I actually have a bachelor's in history of all things um, with a minor in American Indian studies. And I, I always joke that um, if geography had been a degree at my undergraduate institution, I probably would have found it then um, because I've always been sort of a, a really broad interdisciplinary thinker and my research interests have always been really broad. Um, but it wasn't, so I ended up in, in um, history and focusing on natural history. And then um, since history majors <laughs> uh, don't have many things to do with their degrees except for go to law school or teach high, high school history uh, or go into politics, none of which appeal to me, um, I ended up going to work for the Forest Service in California um, because, you know, walking around on trails all summer on a, a trail crew sounded like a lot more fun. Um, so I... Um, I started with the Forest Service in California on a, a timber crew, and then, you know, anybody who's ever worked for the Forest Service in, in California finds out pretty quickly that eventually you're going to end up on a fire, no matter what part of the agency you work for. Um, and so I ended up getting pulled on to do um, prescribed burning, and uh, in, when the fall sort of pile burning season came around, um, and thought it was amazing and just said, oh, this is really cool. This is such an amazing way to manage the forest. Um, and then the fire guys talked me into joining the, the crew next year uh, because they needed somebody who could drive the engine um, and get a CDL. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then that was the 2000 fire season, which of course was a major game changer in the US. Um, so that was my first season actually on a, a wildland fire crew um, and, you know, did um, off forest assignments uh, all over California that summer. So um, what was really interesting is, you know, at that point I had had enough natural resource management and sort of conservation biology background that I said, okay, what are we doing in some of these places? Um, you know, I very distinctly remember sitting on a ridgetop um, above uh, sort of the Big Sur and the, uh, the wilderness area in the Los Padres National Forest and, you know, watching this fire rip through um, Chaparral and, and some of these areas and, you know, watching us sort of, <laughs> have this exercise in futility trying to <laughs> try to dig line in, in this really remote place that was also so beautiful um, that I, I sort of said, well, okay, this, this is kind of not what I thought that land management was going to be and what conservation was going to be. Um, and that ultimately um, led me to get into uh, first consulting and then finally back to grad school. Um, and I wanted to expand my skill set and I wanted to understand more a lot of the ecology and, and how I could use geospatial tools like GIS and remote sensing to, um, you know, to enact better land management practices. Um, and it, it ultimately led to me deciding to 
then go ahead and get a PhD. Um, and I worked um, throughout grad school. I was still predominantly working for land management agencies. I was with the Forest Service on and off for about eight years um, and worked in first in fire. And then I got into the research side. Um, and then uh, for my doctoral work, I actually was employed by USGS up in Anchorage, Alaska um, as a landscape ecologist. And so my my doctoral work took me up to Alaska and I, I did a lot of, um, I learned a lot about boreal forest and how fire works very differently there. Um, so, you know, ultimately, um, as, as life always does, it threw a curveball at me in the, in the form of my spouse, um, who did not want to live in Alaska <laughs> and uh, uh, ended up, we ended up both getting jobs um, in Idaho as academics. So I spent 10 years in Idaho and now I'm back in California at uh, UC Merced. Um, and I style myself a pyrogeographer because I really have been all over the place. And I look at a lot of different issues in fire. Um, everything from incredibly applied sort of management and um, stakeholder engagement types of topics uh, to really basic biology and physical science. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm, I'm someone who's uh, tying together a lot of loose ends um, and thinking about things from that lens um, rather than sort of taking deep dives in specific topic areas. Totally. Love the breadth over depth uh, concept. <laughs> and that was a big part of why I wanted to speak with you was just because it seemed like you did have a really broad range of, of experiences and interests and the topics that you cover in your research are, are, are very broad. And um, I do have one like sort of self-serving question, not self-serving so much as an interest that I specifically have, but none of my listeners are going to care about. And that is um, how you transitioned from your bachelor's in history to a master's presumably in the sciences like was that um was there like an, a mix of experience and knowledge and, and education that allowed you to do that because that's something I'm interested in doing but I have an English degree and I'm like I there's no way I'm going to be able to convince somebody to take me on into a graduate program with an English degree for a science related you know grad program so. yeah you know that's a great question and um I, I think the key things that allowed me to make that transition were that um I had uh, I had taken some um, science courses as an undergrad. Um, at some point, there had been thoughts, I think, of majoring in biology because um, I knew I liked research, but I didn't want to be pre-med. Um, and, you know, so I had some background in science, but I think more what facilitated that transition was that um, geography programs, by definition, are very broad. Right. And so they really look at there's people that come in from all different uh, disciplines with all different types of training and skill sets. Um, you know, and I think that having some sort of life experience um, is also a really key factor in being able to make those transitions because you're not just, you know, they're, they're, to some extent, you have to go back and learn some of the basics that you didn't necessarily learn but you also have immediate real world applications and being able to apply theoretical concepts to the world that you've already experienced allows for you to grasp and really investigate those concepts much more quickly. Um, you know, I would also say that there is this sort of incredibly false perception in my mind that um, 
humanities majors are not quantitative people um, and therefore can't really make it in quantitative programs. Uh, and that in my mind is, is just simply not true. And, and the, um, you know, what the humanities do is allow you to, to really develop a lot of those critical thinking um, and communication skills. It's like, you know, every scientist, no matter how quantitative they are, they ultimately have to write a thesis or a doctorate and write papers. Um, and I think that my humanities training actually has really given me a much better foundation for writing, a better foundation for science communication, um, you know, and, and the quantitative stuff I picked up. I mean, I was, I did my doctoral work in remote sensing. That's highly quantitative, right? Um, and I just picked it up. I think I took like seven stats classes when I was uh, a grad student, some of them just for funsies, um, you know, and it's like, okay, it's, it, you know, it, I didn't, I didn't not get a undergraduate degree in the sciences because I didn't like or couldn't handle sciences. History was just interesting to me and it still is today. And a big piece of what I do in my research and how I frame fire topics, um, you know, whether it's teaching in my classes or talking to journalists or even framing out research papers is drawing from that history because we have a long land management history um, and an even longer uh, human environment history in North America and globally that shapes our relationship with fire. Okay, that's that's affirming. That's definitely affirming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for answering that. We got into the weeds a little bit there, and by we, I mean me. I I got us into the weeds <laughs> it's a good. little bit it's there. Um, um, so yeah, love getting into the weeds. But I am curious uh, a little bit if you could just tell me a little bit about maybe your current research or what you're currently working on, maybe current interests, passions, whatever. Yeah, so um, I, I would say I, I have not gotten any better better at uh, narrowing my my scope. Um, it's only gotten broader over time. Uh, and of course, um, coming from Idaho uh, back to California and into the UC system um, was, you know, was done knowing that there are just so many really pressing issues in California um, related to wildfire, and so. Where my research is predominantly focusing now um, is really in, in three areas that all are wrapped around the concept of uh, mitigating wildfire disasters, right? Um, and, and so the, a lot of the work earlier in my career was really grounded in the ecology and trying to understand um, the landscape ecology of wildfire and, and then watching these disasters unfold with increasing frequency and scope and scale over the last two decades um, has really forced me to take a look at, okay, well, we have a lot of knowledge about wildfire and the ecology of it and how it functions in, in our ecosystems. Um, what we struggle enormously with and the reason that we see wildfire disasters is that human relationship with fire and our sort of evolving, um, our evolving view of fire over the history of not just the US, but human history from something that is an incredibly valuable tool for humans that has shaped our evolutionary path. I often argue um, to my students that, you know, when people ask if humans are different from other animals, um, and there's a lot of discussions about various, you know, opposable thumbs and brain size and all these other things. And the argument that I make over and over again is that we are the only species on earth that can make and control fire. Um, and it is 
it, it is just the thing that uh, anthropologists and archaeologists have established, evolutionary archaeologists have established as this is what really separates humans, right? Um, but now we have this fear of fire um, in huge parts of the world and predominantly um, in the US, in, in the Western US, we have this massive fear of fire. Um, so my work is focusing on, all right, can we better understand what actually produces a wildfire disaster? Um, it's not just a fire occurring, right? It's a fire occurring in a specific way and interacting with human infrastructure and populations. Um, and then how can we specifically mitigate uh, wildfire disasters for the populations that are the most vulnerable, right? Um, because I think there's a perception across um, large parts of the country that, you know, well, the people that are having their homes burned down by fires, they're all the rich people that live in Malibu, right? Um, so whatever, they, it's, they can just rebuild or they can go live in their second house or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, that's, a, that's unfortunately a, a, a really large misperception, right? Um, it's just simply not true because a huge portion of the population that is most negatively impacted by wildfires are the people who are already incredibly marginalized in our populations, right? They're already feeling the impacts of, um, you know, social inequities and uh, are asking for climate justice and wildfire and its impacts are part of that climate and environmental justice issue. Um, so trying to understand better how we can support uh, the most vulnerable and marginalized communities um, and help them uh, mitigate prior to and recover from uh, wildfire. And then, you know, a big piece of that is, is being able to increase the amount of prescribed fire. Uh, we know that prescribed fire is an incredibly effective tool. It was used by our indigenous populations for millennia across huge landscapes um, before colonization. Um, and today it's still utilized by a number of tribes um, in the US and then other indigenous populations globally. We know it still works. It's incredibly effective um, and it's widely used in certain parts of the world and even in the southeastern US. Um, but we've struggled to, to accept the need to expand it and accept the inherent risks um, associated with prescribed fire in the Western US. So I'm working with tribal partners and I'm working with agency partners, um, industry partners, trying to develop um, the science basis and trying to develop the applications frameworks for expanding prescribed fire. That's great. And that's how I actually originally found out about you was doing a piece that I wrote about like the sort of inherent shortcomings of our current prescribed fire structure or system um, in the piece, the, the research that you did. Um, I pretty much pulled, I, I pulled a lot of, a lot of the insights that I had in that, in that piece from, from directly from your research. And um, I, I found you. that to be really insightful. And I mean, really something that we don't think about a lot is just like this system, the systemic sort of shortcomings that we that we need to overcome in order for prescribed fire to actually be a legitimate, you know, everyone can shout from the rooftops that we need more prescribed fire, but um, are we looking at the ways in which we're like kind of systemically not allowing that? So actually, can you talk a little bit about that kind of those, those uh, systemic issues or those, those structural issues that are preventing us from prescribed fire initiatives on a larger scale? Yeah, so you know, this is a question that, that people ask a lot um, is, okay, well, I hear you, what, I understand we need to actually expand prescribed fire and do a lot more of it. So, so how do we do that? Please tell me, right? Um, and and it 
happens at multiple scales um, and at sort of multiple levels of the hierarchy because ultimately somebody has to light the match, right? Um, and, or, or the drip torch as the case may be, um, you know, and, and it has to be a, a function of um, policy. It has to be a function of um, support, both fiscally and culturally, right? And then it has to be uh, sort of a, um, a level of social acceptance that in the West people struggle with. Right. Um, and so we've got, you know, policy is probably the area that has been one of the major barriers. Um, and for a long time in the Western US, it was uh, policies related to air quality, where prescribed fire uh, smoke was treated like, like uh, pollution, essentially, um, in the same category as industrial or agricultural pollution. Um, so that has been slowly changing. And, and over the last 20 years, we've seen tremendous strides in uh, understanding that prescribed fire smoke is actually an investment against catastrophic wildfire, right? Um, so that's coming along. We're also seeing policies uh, evolving that are um, cognizant of liability issues because there is always risk with prescribed fire, right? There's, there's risk with um, any time that you're going to light something and not know exactly what's going to happen next right and you can't with fire because it is such a complex combustion process right and especially in across landscapes um you know when when you don't know exactly what's going to happen you're inherently taking on a little bit of risk um and that has historically been uh, a minor amount of risk balanced against no risk from doing no fire at all, right? That's the way we've traditionally seen it. Well, we could do prescribed fire or we could just have no fire, right? And that is not an option anymore. Now it's prescribed fire or wildfire. So, so that recognition um, has altered how Western states are starting to see this risk. And they're actually starting to take the lead of uh, the Southeastern states, um, which have you know long had these, these tremendous prescribed fire programs that are are uh, are based on uh, liability laws that basically acknowledge that if you don't do prescribed fire, if you don't do your fuel your fuels reduction, you know you're taking a much bigger risk of a catastrophic wildfire. Um, and so those sort of liability laws, um, SB 332 is currently working its way through California, um, and if that passes, California will finally have sort of a change in how it views liability associated with prescribed fire and it won't be on individual people anymore if you know if the worst case scenario happens and it gets out of control um so that's been a big part the cultural shift um has been both fast and slow right so there's widespread acknowledgement that we need prescribed fire but when the fire gets lit there's still a um you know, a deeply embedded fear of flame at that scale. And there's a deeply embedded um, aesthetic sort of perception of black land is bad, right? Um, when people drive around in, in the Western US and they see black landscapes, the vast majority of the public says, oh God, there must've been a horrible wildfire right there, right? Um, and when I drive around in the Western US and 
in places like California, I love seeing black landscapes where it's evident to me that it was low severity fire, whether it was low severity wildfire or prescribed fire, right? When I see people out burning along the edges of fields and making sure that they're um, burning the grass back this year, I love seeing that. Um, and so black is not bad to my eyes, but black is bad to a lot of people's eyes. And so it's a struggle to overcome that, that cultural perception. Um, you know, in part because most people haven't actually seen what a prescribed fire looks like a couple of years later when the flowers come in, when everything is thinned out and it looks, you know, clean in the forest, right? Um, they just haven't seen it, or if they have, they didn't know what they were looking at. Um, so trying to to do that education has been a real challenge, um, you know. And and as public support grows, as um, policy begins to shift to support that. The final piece of it that we run into uh, is that it's expensive to do prescribed fire, right? Um, and we struggle with um, putting the types of structures in place and both funding structures and then also sort of, um, you know, fire resource structures that support prescribed fire, right? Um, it's not been something that's been well-funded, even in some of the most recent um, budgets that have come out of uh, Western states, and particularly in California, we're dumping huge amounts of money into the fire problem in California, and there's still very, very little funding for prescribed fire. There's very little funding for prescribed fire at the federal level. Um, and so it's, you know, when you don't have the money there, you can't hire the people with the qualifications to come do the work. Um, and again, it's an investment, right? And it's hard for, we'll spend any amount of money to put a wildfire out once it's started, but it's really hard to make that sort of investment up front. Um, and part of not making that investment up front is that we don't have a workforce that is fully dedicated to prescribed fire. Um, and a, a great example of um, an entity that does have that is the Nature Conservancy. I mean, the Nature Conservancy is, you know, they're essentially the, the, the global leaders in having a dedicated, intentional fire workforce uh, where that's what their employees do. Yeah, yeah, if there's a wildfire, they might go, you know, work on it a little bit, but not really, right? They really are focused on developing a workforce that is implementing prescribed fire, and that's what their primary job is. Whereas the federal agencies, Prescribed fire is what firefighters do in the off season, right? But as soon as there's a fire, prescribed fire becomes a secondary objective. Um, and, and so starting to flip that around and funding that sort of effort is critical to, to overcoming that last hurdle. Sorry, that was a really long explanation, but- That was fantastic. I, I talk about this stuff a lot and I'm like, I just tend to jabber on unless I know I'm up against the time limit. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, definitely. I enjoy getting people kind of on a soapbox and just letting them go. It's great. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you've mentioned misperceptions or misconceptions. Uh, and I'm curious if, if there are any others uh, just that are commonly held in the public or maybe even in the wildland fire community uh, that you are actively trying to combat or that you that kind of drive you crazy or are there anything is there anything you can think of off the top of your head oh gosh well there's lots yeah um, dozens I'm sure let me pick right. one what's the worst so many so many no you know I I think that you know I think that the the, the thing that I try to talk about um, with sort of the general public and, and journalists and when I give public talks is, um, you know, 
the way that we sort of overcome this disaster problem is by uh, starting to starting to do work individually on the ground, right? And doing whatever you can do because the history of the history of fire in the US has been one of top-down government control, right? Um, and that stems, there's a historical reason for that, right? Like, I mean, the 1910 fires uh, led to the Forest Service finally getting funding and the Forest Service said, okay, we're gonna put out all the fires. We're, this is gonna be our job, right? Everybody else stay back, this is our job. Um, you know, and so that, that legacy has now persisted for 110 years where there is an assumption in the Western US that if there's a wildfire, uh, the federal government's going to show up, or in California, the CAL FIRE is going to show up and just take care of things, right? Um, and that you as a homeowner just get out of the way and you don't have to do anything, right? Um, and and that is really one of the root problems because where we when we look at places where um, we're successfully mitigating natural hazards um, and managing our landscapes, um, in a much more resilient way, what we see is both a top-down and a bottom-up cooperative structure, right? Um, some of the best examples of that actually come out of community forestry, where if we're trying to save tropical forests and places like that, um, there has to be action and buy-in that works for local communities at the bottom of the ladder. Um, and, and so, you know, reframing this this perception that well I just you know I just have to evacuate and get out of the way and um, you know and and let the government come in and they're going to take care of everything it really requires people to rethink like okay what are the things that I can do right what are the things that I can do both as a you know a homeowner all the defensible space stuff um, all of the home hardening stuff. Um, and, you know, as a person who lives in a fire prone area, right, understanding evacuation procedures, getting involved in planning processes, if, you know, if that's possible. Um, but then, you know, understanding how that links into this larger framework of how we, how we work on fire and have a fire culture, right, which is, um, you know, asking and asking for and supporting initiatives like prescribed fire. Um, you know, one of the things that that gets talked about a lot is uh, so-called environmental activism that prevents um, fuel treatments or prescribed fires from happening, right? Um, and the reality of for communities is that, you know, if you wanna see prescribed fire like in your neighborhood or protecting your town, ask for it. Um, I will never forget that when I was doing my master's thesis work and I was interviewing, I interviewed almost 200 prescribed burn bosses from around the country. Um, and when I talked to the folks from the South, this guy from Mississippi, who was, you know, like a battalion chief slash burn boss on, um, oh, I can't remember the national forest is in Mississippi now, but, um, you know, he, I called him and I was talking to him about, okay, well, you guys have really good fire culture. You know, how does this work? Like, what, what are the things that help you let you know when it's time to really get out and start burning for the season? He said, oh, that's easy. I get phone calls all day long from residents wanting to know when we're gonna come and burn off the back 40 for them, right? Because the residents know, they're like, oh, it's, it's fire time, right? And they, they have this very different cultural perception about it. 
Um, you know, and, and so doing things like, hey, if everybody in our county called at Cal Fire and said, are you guys going to come out and, you know, burn off this or burn off that or, you know, or, or start calling the National Forest and saying, hey, we're, you know, you guys are just up the road from us. Can, can you please come out and burn some stuff, please? It would really start to put pressure and shift that perception that, you know, fire is good and and the communities aren't against the agencies anymore they want to see more fire in fact they want to come out and help um and so we've seen things like you know the burn boss certification program is now um up and running in california and people are getting their burn boss certifications right i'm gonna go get my burn boss certification um once we're post-covid and we're gonna have a trex here in a few months um you know and start getting start empowering and enabling private citizens to be part of the solution, right? And give them agency to change what they don't like about the situation and the constant risk of fire. Um, you know, and, and we just um, we just bought property up in um, Tuolumne County and that's where we're moving. Um, you know, and it is a place that according to every fire risk map that I've looked at, it says, well, you're screwed. Um, you know, you're in the super high fire hazard. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I'm pretty sure I can figure out how to, you know, manage my house and my landscape so that we're not a fire hazard, um, you know, and so that we can very comfortably um, shelter in place because it's down a remote long one-way road, right? Um, and that, you know, we don't have to worry about having, you know, this, 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 absolutely horrifying thing that you see on YouTube time and time again, where it's people driving down narrow roads and trees are coming down and power lines and there's traffic jams and there's fire on both sides. And it's, you know, it's that, it's that inferno and, and you see it again and again and again in these little videos that people take as they're escaping from wildfires. Oh, this is hell on earth, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be if you sort of go into it saying, okay, I know what the situation is and I'm going to set myself up to be successful. And for me, as a professor, as an educator, as a science communicator, I am, um, you know, I'm actually going to be inviting a lot of my students and my colleagues up to our place to teach them how to burn. Um, you know, we'll just do little tiny burns during, during the, the winter and, uh, you know, little, little bits here and there so that people can see like, oh, it's not scary, right? As long as you're burning you just even a you know a tenth of an acre or a twentieth of an acre at a time take a 10 by 10 patch and burn that that day and then the next day burn the next patch next day. it's like you can do these things in a way that's not scary and it's just learning that process and that's exactly what uh you know indigenous people have done since time immemorial we, we start i mean my indigenous colleagues like they start talking about how, yeah, they, they were burning stuff when they were two, three years old, right? They learned at their parents' and their grandparents' sides. Um, and that's what I want to do with my kids is teach them how to burn young. And I want to teach my students and my neighbors and my colleagues so that we have this growing culture of, okay, this we can do this. We can all do this in little bits. Um, because one of the things I hear a lot is, how, well, okay, Crystal, you're telling us that you know we need to burn two, three, five million acres a year in the state of California. How on earth are we gonna do that, right? I mean, we're, are we just gonna have to have like a whole bunch of these big five or 10,000 acre burns? And I think, no, 
you know, it's a heck of a lot easier to do, uh, you know, a million one acre burns or even 5 million, you know, quarter acre burns um, than to try and do 1,000 acre burn because it is just so difficult to do big burns because you just lose, I mean, there's, there's, there's control challenges, right? Um, but if 5 million people in the state of California who have a little bit of land and said, yeah, you know what? I can go out and do like an acre on my property this week. There we go, 5 million acres, right? In one fell swoop. And it totally. changes how people see that landscape. Well, uh, it's sort of a parallel, but something I thought about when I was driving through Eastern Washington last week, I actually saw two different prescribed fires sort of on the distance and the horizon. Cause this, well, this was like three weeks ago and that's kind of a good time. Um, it's when we did all of our prescribed burning was in late April, early, yep. early May when I was on, um, on various fire crews, especially in Eastern Oregon. And it was cool to like drive through. I saw the, I saw the two fires that were like for sure fires. And then I saw a bunch of dust clouds from farmers tilling their fields. And it just made me think like how accepted uh, the, pr the practice of tilling your fields in this two to three week period of time in April, given that you have good conditions and given like, you know, the, just the, the sort of weather circumstances that you're dealing with. And if we just kind of if we came into prescribed fire and that same mindset of like doing what's needed and doing it at this exact time of the year when it's, when it's best and just having it be the sort of widely accepted thing that everyone does on their own properties. Um, just cause I saw, I mean, I saw dozens of these, of these dust clouds from, from farmers tilling and every single time I saw a new one, I was like, is that a fire? And, uh, and I just like, I just kind of drew a parallel between the acceptance of that practice and how maybe like a similar, a similar mindset could maybe be a good framework for prescribed fire in the future, right? Just like, just like, yeah. And hey, Bob, like, are you, have you burned yet? You know, we've only got another couple of weeks before it starts getting really hot or we start getting red flag warnings. Like it's time to start, time to burn off those yeah. couple acres on your property that need it, like that kind of thing. I don't know, just and, a random anecdote. Exactly, <laughs> well, but, and that's exactly what the model is in, in the Midwest and in the South, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you know, it, it's always funny when I, I start working with people who um, haven't worked a lot with fire before and they get into the data side of it and they <clears> start looking at all these fire maps and um, anybody who looks at um, the national fire data sets and the big fire maps immediately notices that, okay, most of the big fires are in the West. There's a bunch of stuff in the Southeast. And then in like Eastern Kansas, there's this huge amount of fire, right? And, and I think in the MTBS database, the Monitoring Trends and Burns Party database, it's like, you know, it's like a half a million acres a year or something like that. Um, and, and, you know, for research scientists who don't know anything about any of this background, they just start looking, they're like, oh, what's going on here? I'm like, oh, it's Flint Hills. Um, you know, and then you have to explain like, yeah, so here's what happens in the East, you know, in the Midwest and the Southeast, like when it's burn season in the spring, when their dry period is, and they want to burn off last year's grass, like, you know, they start, they get on the rancher phone tree and they start saying, okay, it's time. Everybody meet down at the Grange Hall and, you know, and they go in and they, and they, they're smart guys, right? They bring the best science in, but then they all go out and just go from ranch to ranch to ranch, um, which is exactly what they also do during harvest season. Cause the, you know, you get the harvesters going from unit to unit to unit, unit. And it's like, yeah, that, that sort of very different culture expectation is one of the biggest things that it's a struggle for people to think of fire that way. 
um, and to think that, oh, we could actually do this this way, right? Um, and it, that's actually the point of the burn cooperatives that are farming in California. Um, and I, I don't think there's, I think they're actually starting one in Oregon now, but for the most part, they're currently just in, in California in the West. Um, you know, but that's exactly what they do. They, they're they saying, all right, here's a, a group of people in a community who all of them have a little bit of land. Maybe it's only a couple acres. Maybe it's a couple hundred acres or more, right? Um, and they're gonna band together and they're all gonna work together to make sure everybody's property gets a little bit burned, um, you know, to, to manage the landscape and manage the fuels every year. Um, and so this is, it's a really new thing. Um, the burn cooperatives have only been around for a few years and there's not very many yet, um, but Cal Fire is supporting it. The state is supporting it, um, you know, and the agencies are, I, I think, struggling, but slowly coming around to the idea um, and understanding that the only way that we're gonna solve this problem is through a lot of collective action um, instead of just relying on the government to step in and save us, so. That was a great answer. I appreciated that. I, thanks for entertaining <laughs> that like random thought that I had while driving through Eastern Oregon mm. and, or Eastern Washington and thinking that every single dust cloud was another prescribed fire. I was like, oh, another one. Oh no, it's just dust. Well, <laughs> have you driven through in the fall when they're burning the wheat fields? I haven't. Oh, no, I this seen is a that. standard. Yeah. So in the spring, it's that, so I lived in, I lived in Moscow, Idaho for 10 years, right? Uh -huh. um, which is, that's all wheat country on the Palouse. And yep. every, every spring, it's the, when it finally gets dry enough, they can get out and till up and plant the spring wheat. Um, or if they're, pl if they're planting lentils or peas or other stuff, that's all spring. Um, and then in fall, they come out and burn a lot of fields um, so that they can put the, the winter wheat in and so it's you know um there's been a lot of changes over the years of, in in terms of how they can do that and there's a real i think reduction in the amount of um, fields that get burned compared to what it was historically but still it is for a for a fire scientist it's a jarring thing to be driving around um, the columbia basin and seeing smoke columns everywhere and then you realize it's oh yeah it's another wheat field it's another wheat field right um, so it's, uh, yeah, but, but that's the thing, right? Is that like, again, it's these blackened landscapes and people who grow up in those areas, right? When they see wheat fields burned, they know exactly why, right? We're burning wheat fields because we want to be able to put the winter wheat in. Um, and then a lot of the students, uh, that come over to Washington state from Seattle or Portland, they see those black fields. They have no experience with the farming or anything like that. And they assume it was a wildfire, right? And so there's this negative reaction to those black fields. And that that's the perception that we have to overcome. That leads well into uh, my last question, which is simply, I've asked this to a lot of uh, my guests actually, is is just kind of how we can change the, the language that we use, or maybe just change the conversations that we're having on like a media level, but also maybe just, yeah, on our own level, like, I don't know, in the, in the fire community itself. Um, what's kind of missing from, from these conversations or what, how can we change our language to better support the initiatives that we're kind of aiming for? Yeah, so I've written a lot um, and talked a lot the last couple of years about how we need to, and, and I, when I say we, I mean the science community and science communicators, um, you know, we need to stop talking about um, bad fires and start talking about bad fire outcomes or impacts, right? Um, and 
one of the things that I really um, talked a lot and wrote a lot about in the 2020 fire season was that, and this has been a long time coming for me, um, you know, we have to stop being obsessed with area burns because being obsessed with size of fires, I mean, there's all sorts of, um, there's all sorts of uh, fun jokes that go along with being obsessed with size uh, in a sort of macho dominated fire or macho male dominated, um, you know, fire culture. Uh, but the reality is that if fire is this necessary process and if we acknowledge that we actually want more good fire, we have to stop counting uh, the amount of fire and saying more is bad. Right, um, because that's what actually what we want. What we need to look at is where those impacts are, um, you know. And so, what I've really tried to do, and and I'm just as guilty as everybody else. I mean, you know, it is um, it's really easy to justify writing a funding proposal or to start writing a paper with, well, all these really bad things have happened thanks to fire, right? Um, but what I've really tried to do is really reframe the way I talk about it as, okay here's this spot where there's these bad fire outcomes, right? And it's not the whole fire. Um, it's not, you know, the, the million acre August complex that burned in Northern California last summer. 990,000 of those million acres um, did not have the sort of catastrophic human impacts, right? The, yes, they produce smoke. Um, that obviously is, has some negative impacts, but but really a, a small fraction of that fire, probably you know, a couple percent of that fire was where we had the catastrophic impacts, right? Um, home losses, there was one fatality on that fire. Um, you know, some really critical cultural resources were lost. Um, there were some sacred places um, for the um, tribal entities that were impacted by that fire, right? Um, and, and you know, obviously some potential impacts to um, the salmon uh, spawning grounds that are in the, the mountains that were burned. Um, but, but those are pretty small areas. And most of that fire or most of the area that was burned in that fire needed fire. It hadn't had fire in a hundred years and it's a landscape that evolved with relatively frequent fire, right? So for most of that million acres, we had a reintroduction of fire after it had been kept out for a really long time, um, you know, and I, I, uh, I am moving uh, out of Fresno, uh, where I've spent the, the last year and a half through the pandemic. Um, and so, of course, I spent the summer watching, or the, the late summer, early fall, watching the Creek Fire um, in California. And, and there was a lot of discussion afterwards about, oh, this is the worst wildfire ever in California. You know, super amounts of carbon emitted and, and enormous amounts of destruction of forest and, you know, and, and that when I started driving up through the burned area, it was exactly what I would expect to see, which is that in certain places, there were catastrophic outcomes. Homes and businesses destroyed, um, you know, certain areas that were um, older growth and, and in some cases, um, the, um, you know, the protected sequoia groves and things like that. Um, Creek Fire didn't actually take out any sequoias, but um, there were other sequoia groves that were killed last summer, right? But, but as, it, as we started driving up into those areas, um, you know, in the winter and then the spring, it's like, oh, 
okay, yes, there were some bad outcomes. There were some really dramatic outcomes like the National Guard having to lift out people from you know, a lake, right? Um, who somehow thought that even standing in the middle of the lake, they were gonna get burned alive. Not entirely sure, but that's the fear part, right? Um, but for a huge portion of the Creek Fire, which was about 380,000 acres, um, you know, it was really positive outcomes. Uh, that forest was, again, a place where the fire return interval was like five to 10 years and there hadn't been any fire there for a hundred years, right? Um, so enormously overstocked, a lot of trees killed by the five-year drought in California, enormous amounts of dead fuel on the ground and no tree regeneration happening in that forest because it was so sick and it was so unhealthy and there was so much dead material, right? Um, and so, you know, the human impacts, the smoke, the homes lost, um, you know, the cost of having to do that evacuation and the PTSD that is, you know, a, a part of the experience for anyone who's had to go through that evacuation process. They're gonna have nightmares about that the rest of their lives, right? Those are the bad outcomes. Other parts of that fire, huge, huge sections of that fire are not bad outcomes, right? And we have to separate those things so that we can mitigate the bad stuff effectively, right? And that, that's why I wanna talk to people more and more about, okay, we've gotta stop, we've gotta stop focusing on all fire is bad and we've gotta stop obsessing about how big fires get. We need to really focus on not preventing fires, but mitigating those bad outcomes. Um, and that's a hard message to get across because no matter how much we talk about, yeah, fire, you know, we know these systems need fire, we need more prescribed fire. I still get the question and the, you know, the state releases um, budget plans and fuel treatment plans and things. And they always say, this is going to prevent wildfires. And I said, no, it's not going to prevent wildfires, nor do we want to prevent wildfires, right? What we want is to prevent wildfire disasters. And that's the thing um, that is. Uh, it's, it's nuanced enough that it is a hard thing for people to grasp, right? Um, because it's a long history of fire is bad and no fire is good. Um, and so starting to at least separate into that one tiny piece of nuance about, you know, destructive outcomes are bad, but non-destructive non outcomes and more fire is good. Um, that's a baby step that we need to take. All right, folks, that's what we've got for you today. I'd like to give a huge thanks to Crystal for coming on the show. If you'd like to hear more from Crystal or just check out her past or ongoing research, you can find her on Twitter at Pyrogeographer or on her website at www.pyrogeographer.com. Thanks again, Crystal, and thanks to everybody for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this one, and uh, if you guys have any suggestions for guests moving forward, I am booked out through about August for episodes, but I'd love to hear your suggestions if you have anybody, any scientists or practitioners, maybe indigenous folks, um, anybody that you think might be a good guest, please let me know. Uh, you can find us on social media, Life with Fire Pod or Life with Fire Podcast on you know Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and you can find our contact info there. Thanks again for listening, and we will catch you on the next one.